Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You weren't going to have an erotic thriller with like N64 graphics, right? That wasn't going to work, but now It you- could be done. Yeah. <laughs> it could be done. It maybe shouldn't, but like it yeah. could be done. <laughs> Welcome to Pocket Buds, a back pocket podcast where I talk to my best buds about video games and stuff. But when Melbourne International Games Week ended, I felt scared. 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 Alone. 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 And hungry Hungry. for a fulfilling conversation. It was as if one of the most socially, physically and mentally taxing weeks of my life had ended and yet my soft, shitty body craved more. And so it was yet another week of straight spitting thanks to South by Southwest Sydney, the very first of its kind to hit our soil. During this time, I got the chance to speak to a few talents of the industry both in our studio and outside of it. For this episode, I got the chance to talk to Sam Barlow, who you may know as the director and writer of Immortality, or perhaps the lead designer and writer of Silent Hill Origins or Shattered Memories. Or maybe, just maybe, you know him as one of the script writers for later seasons of Thomas the Tank Engine. If that last one is the case, I must apologise. That is the wrong Sam Barlow. Without further ado, here's our chat with Sam. Enjoy. Hello, Sam. How are you going today? I'm good, thanks. That's good I'm having a fun time here in Sydney. What has been your favourite part of Sydney so far? I've had some really nice food. I I most enjoy the weird thing that happens to your brain if you're from the UK. Because mm. I've been to Sydney once before. Um, and you're walking around and just little things like the, the crossing signs and the traffic cones and the street names. It's like you're in a weird Disneyland UK. But <laughs> like the weather's nice and the food's good and people seem healthier generally. Yeah. So it's, it's – I think it's because we've got so many different kinds of food. You know what I mean? Like that's 
the essence of it being good food, but also people seem healthier is because like we have so many so many good food choices. I don't think it was. From. I think when you know when people left the British Isles uh, to do their pillaging, it probably mm. wasn't hard to improve the quality of the food. Yeah, that was maybe the first thing on their agenda. Well, like I've seen some really interesting, and like I'm I'm giving a lot of generosity to, to the word interesting, like accounts that show like British food. Oh, it's all yeah. very like. Gray. My wife follows a lot of those for like <laughs> nostalgia vibes. She has like more, uh, more nostalgia, and whereas I'm like when when we left the UK, I sent a letter to the Queen, <laughs> rest in peace, uh, <laughs> saying you know I'm done, thank you, but I feel like this this island is slowly sinking into the water, and you you know it's got to be that like heartwarming slop, you know, like the kind of stuff where like it doesn't look particularly good, but you had it when when you were a kid, and it like. It filled your tummy up and, and, and made you smile, but at the end of the day you take one look at it and it's the saddest meal you've ever seen in your life. Trying to explain to people when they come, especially when they come to New York, and people have figured out how to cook sprouts. Mm. and Because everything in the UK, you just boil the vegetable until it's getting close to that grey brown. And we're like, no, if you like roast things and season them. Yeah, oh my God. They taste good. I, I remember hating Brussels sprouts as a kid and it was because I literally only ever had them boiled to the point where were they Brussels sprouts anymore? Who knows? Were they just foodstuffs? Maybe. The first time I had roasted Brussels sprouts. Oh my God. Life changing. Some good stuff. Incredible. This is the content everyone wants. Yeah. I think it, no, I think it is. I think it really is. Like people, people give a shit about this stuff, man. Have you kind of seen anything or met anyone from uh, like our local games industry that sparked your interest? I was humbled and felt, really stupid for not realizing how many games come out of Australia and stuff that I was like, oh, I vaguely knew Hollow Knight. And I'm like, oh, Crossy Road and just so many. And, and then we were looking around the expo and there were like a ton of games and they all looked really cool. Oh, yeah. The mobile game industry is a very interesting one uh, where people don't know that a lot of the bigger games came from Australia, like Jetpack Joyride, Crossy Road, Fruit Ninja were Australian games. Yeah. And it's, it's, I feel like if you if you take Scandinavia out of the equation and Australia, who there's, there's no nothing much game. left. No, no good mobile game industry. I'll be honest. I, I'm a I am a mobile game appreciator. I love it, and I feel like uh, when I you, want to be, it's, I was, and I try, <laughs> and th- it it doesn't love me back. I think it's just there's not as much quality control on the the main marketplaces like like the app store and the especially the google play store and i say that as an android haver uh but the google play store is a cesspool well if you think you should you should check out the uh the kindle store if you want to really if if anyone from amazon is watching (laughs) Um, yeah i I put what back in the day i put her story amazon kept approaching us at shows and kept being like hey so much synergy here, right? Like we have all the books and we know who buys crime thrillers and we have all our TV shows. Like get on the get on the Kindle. And in my mind, I had a Kindle and it was where I read all my good books and my mm. literature. And you know, some stuff less literary. So in my head, I'm like, oh yeah, the Kindle. That's gonna, yeah. That's that's my people. So we we went to the effort of doing the Kindle port and put it out. And then I checked out like the Kindle store. And what I hadn't realized was the Kindle tablet because it was heavily subsidized by Amazon, was basically the cheapest tablet you could buy. Yes. So it was the one that parents would buy for kids and just kind of leave them with and stuff. So that store is 
is a fun place. I get like one cent a year. Every year they're like, here's your, your annual earnings. Because when I think of the Kindle, my first thought is like the 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 book version of that yeah. tablet that like looks like you're that, like flipping pages. When that first came out and it actually had games on it. I don't think the new ones support it, but um, yeah. if you play Triple Town, it was Spry Fox. I remember the, the that, one with the bears, right? Well, it, I think maybe it had bears, but the original version was on the e-ink Kindle. And because huh. it's like pretty slow pace, right? You, you mm. move and a thing happens. There's no real animation going on. Uh, it was perfect for that screen. And I played probably, I don't know, 50 plus hours of wow. the original Triple Town on the e-ink Kindle. It was so much fun. Um, rocks oh my gosh your starting point in the industry was aisle right and and i'd really love to know about how aisle kind of came to be what guided its conception and went into its creation yeah i mean probably accurately that was my starting point outside of the industry right that was right that was me at that point not even thinking about a career in game dev yeah like which was weird i remember i grew up with like bedroom coding and Having knowing there were these figures that were like famous bedroom coders on eight bit machines, whatever, but still somehow my brain didn't register that real people made these things. It was Mm. a job you could have. But Isle was, yeah, I could talk about this for hours. Uh, Please do. (laughs) It's like in the late nineties, there was this kind of renaissance for text games, Mm. and it kind of came out because there were a couple of people. uh, Notably, one of them was uh, this guy Graham Nelson, who was at. It was, it was one of the universities, Cambridge or Oxford. So he's like a smart guy. He was really, really into the old Infocom text adventures, like the classics. And so he was trying to, I think the idea originally was he was like reverse engineering them to create uh, you know, a way of running them on modern computers. And that required him to, to essentially get really geeky on this one. Like Infocom, who made like Zork and all these classic games, they were all like super smart guys from MIT. Yeah. And... The really cool thing about Zork and all the games they made was they pioneered this this concept of a virtual computer, which I mm. guess is a, a much bigger deal now. So they wouldn't have to make Zork for each different machine. They had a Zork and it ran on the the kind of virtual Infocom thing. Yeah. So all you had to do was port the Infocom machine to different platforms and you could then play all the Infocom games. So Graham reverse engineers this. Uh, and in doing so, he's like, oh, I now actually have essentially the toolkit that they used to make those games. So he then kind of builds on that and shares it with the world. And so there was this incredible moment in time, and it was like very early internet when everything was like Usenet and FTPs and mostly text, and everything took forever to download. And so a lot of people around universities, so this was me first year at university, getting access to the computer lab and the internet for the first time. And first thing you do is like, well, I need to get some games. How do I get games? Of course. And it would take, I remember, it, you know, to download like a, a 3D game would take you like 24, 48 hours of just running. So the text game, suddenly it was like, oh, I can download a whole bunch of these text games. And then this kind of scene arose, which was a bunch of us who had this kind of nostalgia for the classic games, but were like, hey, now that these tools are out there, we can make our own versions and we can make really cool things. And there was this real kind of sense of competition within the community to push boundaries and explore different ways of telling stories interactively. Yeah. Um, but no one was under the illusion that this was ever going to make money because we'd seen, you know, we loved all these text adventures and we saw the, you know, the market drop out of those as graphics and 3D came in. So everyone was doing it for the love of it, but there was a, a real sense of how exciting it was that like a book, like a single individual could make a whole game because it was just text, right? So yeah. I can, I can write, the armada of battleships approaches the beach <laughs> and everything explodes. And that's 
almost free. So there was like a, a, a real cool vibe of people pushing and there were people like Adam Cardra did this game, Photopia, which people talk about a lot. Andrew Plotkin did things like So Far, this incredible game, Spider and Web, uh, which I always reference. All these really interesting experiments in kind of different ways of storytelling. So I made this game, Isle, which was my contribution. And it's interesting because if people look at the games I've made, they're like, oh, well, this makes complete sense. You made Isle, uh, then you made these Silent Hill games, you made her story. Like there's a, there's a clear intentional path here but you know it was, it was a lot wilder and it's interesting if i look back and i'm like oh yeah there were elements of isle that clearly resonate with some of the later stuff that was not something i was aware of at the time but the <laughs> the genesis of isle was we were all making these text games and you know people were doing really interesting things so like i remember plotkin so far was this incredible kind of allegorical fantasy game and people were like oh it's kind of like bergman's uh, seventh seal like it's it's got all those elements to it but there's like a feature of the text adventure, which I think is true in most games where as a player, you, you initially have this kind of instinct to test the bounds of the simulation to see like what's going to be allowed in the game. And, and to some extent, be like, how well implemented is this, right? So it's the equivalent to, you know, picking up pots and throwing them at people in Zelda to see what happens, whatever. So in a text adventure, the way you assess if this is a, a polished and, and high quality product is like typing unexpected or random things and expecting to get an interesting and specific answer, right? Like the the really old school text adventures famously were less fun because you would type stuff and the game would just be like, I don't understand. And, and the way this would work is oftentimes it was kind of become humorous, mm. right? If you think as well, like that first generation of like graphic adventures, things like Monkey Island, all the LucasArts games, they often used, they all pretty much had this humorous tone because that helped you kind of get around some of the awkwardness and the silliness of, of the constraints of those games. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the text games had this similar thing. So you would start up a new text game and immediately, you know, you have a character that's supposed to be your friend. So you would start trying to kill them or try kissing them or try jumping off cliffs and doing all sorts of silly, violent things with the expectation that you get a funny response. And then you're like, oh, this person's really kind of trying and paying attention. But it, it kind of irked me because it was so out of place with these more serious works and more dramatic works, right? where you are supposedly in this, you know, a more serious fiction and you're still cracking jokes and doing dumb things. So the, the premise of Isle was, what if I make a game where if the player types the dumb thing, we go through with it? And we like, and, and we punish them, not punish, uh, kind of punish them for it. But it's like, then the genesis was, what's the most boring and un, like, fantastical, fun game location? It was like, oh, a supermarket aisle. So the game starts, you're in a supermarket aisle. Your character is looking at some pasta. Uh, there's a woman further down the aisle. So in this situation, if you decide to run up and kiss woman or throw pasta or climb shelves or remove clothes or you know any of the silly mm. things that you're expecting just like a funny little response the game goes okay well, what is the story where this guy rips off his clothes <laughs> in the middle of What's the supermarket the aisle of this situation? and then you know so then a lot of the stories inevitably became quite sad um, <laughs> stories and but the, the interesting thing with developing that game was it was quite kind of iterative because once i had this premise it was like, well, okay, I guess this is now a thing where I am promising to listen to every possible command you could type mm. and respond to it. And out of that came this interesting constraint where the game lasted for only a single turn. So you would think of a thing that the guy could do, tell him to do it, and then it, the game would take that run with it 
tell you a mini story, finish out the story, and then everything would reset. So then was kind of this sort of multiverse Groundhog Day thing. Yeah. So testing it was basically getting a bunch of people to play it. And then if they came up with something I hadn't thought of, I'm like, oh, okay, now I have to think of a way this could go. And it became interesting because you could uncover stories that conflicted with each other. So yeah. there was, you know, this kind of cubist nature to the narrative. But through the development, it started where everything was very dark and violent, right? It was like, oh, what happens if you try and attack people? What happens if you scream and shout and type swear words and all these things? But it had this kind of interesting arc where... To play Isle is to slowly, over time, be like, well, how do I actually get a good outcome? And it shares elements with things like her story in that by playing a certain action, you might reveal a concept. So many of the stories involve a character called Claire that is not mentioned in the opening text. So by performing certain actions, you have the character remember or flashback to something that happened with this, this character, Claire. So then when you try and come up with new actions, now you can start referencing those things. So then you can be like, oh, remember Claire. And we saw players then figuring out that by trying to perform things that were less horrific and dark, you could steer it in a certain way. So I think you can like call out to Claire and Claire is just in the next aisle buying something else and shows up and you're living in a much happier world. And, you know, so it had this interesting kind of arc that we discovered through through making it and iterating it that then becomes something that the player experiences when they play it. Yeah. But yeah, so that was that was Isle was me out the gate being like, can I have a slightly adversarial relationship with the player? Can I be giving the player a lot of freedom, but then like doing something interesting with it so that I can surprise you with that freedom? So that definitely defines a lot of the interests that have shown up in the later games. But yeah, I made that, put it out. It got like within the interactive fiction people a bit of buzz. But then it was interesting to see that it continued to live on because you could just play it on the internet for free. And so every now and then... You'd see like a gaming website be like, hey, check out this cool thing if you haven't before. Yeah. And then, yeah, years later when I then joined the games industry and was making games and, and making games for other people, kind of in the lead up to going indie, which was like 2014, there was definitely a part of the impetus was going, oh, people are still talking about this thing I made in 1999. That's kind of cool. Like, you know, <laughs> there's, <laughs> nice. there's, you know, people appreciate some of the, the weirdness that was in that game. Yeah, totally. And I mean, like your later work in the interactive film genre, very much like I would argue in, in a league of its own, but is also something that's kind of had a bit of a comeback in recent years in the, the larger industry through both like traditional means like Steam and whatnot, but also through kind of unconventional, so like on YouTube or, or mm -hmm. through Netflix Interactive. What I'm asking is like what is it about FMVs that interests you? Did you ever have any interest in some of those older ones like Night Trap and stuff like that? I So I never played them in it back in the day. I was aware of them. Yeah. Uh, we could never afford like the CD-ROM drive that you needed. And, or the, oh, the Philips CDI, is that it? So it was always, I'd always like look in magazines and be like, oh, that looks so cool and high tech that we have these digitized faces and mm. things. So I was kind of aware of them, never really got to play any of them. And so then... When I started making her story, it was, you know, I'd, I'd been making games for other people, made some fun ones, had a, a fun run where for three years I was directing this Legacy of Kane game that then yeah. got cancelled. Um, and it was this weird, weird <laughs> moment in the industry. There was, I think it was, if I get my generations right, it was the transition to PS3. Mm. So, and games were getting more and more and more expensive mobile had just blown up so all the gaming publishers were terrified will people transition to this new console generation now that we've had all these big shifts 
Um, they were looking at the money you could make from mobile and going, why would I spend 50 million, 100 million on a single player narrative game mm. that might, might break even, might make some money when these people are making billions of dollars from games that look relatively cheap if you yeah. ignore all the acquisition costs. So it was this weird moment and I'd been on a trajectory where uh, I'd done like the Silent Hill games, I'd done Silent Hill Shadow of Memories, which was my first opportunity to kind of come in and say, here is an idea I have of how we should make a game. And we want to innovate some things and expand the envelope. I'd made that. And so it felt like, oh, I'm on this trajectory where I'm going to keep directing interesting uh, in a, a AAA narrative games. And then suddenly, and that was like in this, you know, Bioshock had come out. Mm. Whenever Bioshock came out. And so it really felt like, oh, every publisher is going to want their prestige single player narrative thing, yeah. right? We've hit this level where people are taking notice of games. This is a thing and I can, yeah. this can be my job. But then almost immediately, and like Bioshock is a good case where, you know, immediately the publisher are like, oh, we need multiplayer in Bioshock, right? We, every game has to have multiplayer. I'm a big Bioshock fan and let me tell you, the multiplayer was just like, oh, didn't need it. We had uh, really didn't need. It. <laughs> yeah, if we went, yeah, could talk for hours about Legacy of Kane and how the multiplayer was oh, a yeah. thing there. Didn't, but didn't it become another game? It did. That was that was how they salvaged. Yeah. Uh, possibly, in, in my opinion, as an called? individual, uh, Nosgoth. Nos. My 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 brother was like Nosferatu. But the, no. And that was that was Cyanix. That was yeah. Who who then had huge success with Rocket League? Um, yeah. So that was interesting <laughs> times. But yeah, that was a point where you know I was like, I don't think I. There are so few places now, and it's, it's getting better at this point, but back then it was like, if you want to make a game with characters in it yeah. with a level of production values, unless you're David Cage or Naughty Dog, maybe at that point it's still like Ubisoft. Now, obviously, their games have become kind of slightly more sprawling things, but I was like, I don't think this is a career path <laughs> that I can pursue. But I was getting, I was noticing on mobile like some really cool shit, like uh, Simago. I was obsessed with uh, Year Walk, and then they put out Device 6. And as well, like we'd had so much fun on the Wii with Shattered Memories because that gave us this excuse to be innovative, Yeah, which normally you weren't allowed to do. And so we'd be like, oh, we want to get rid of combat and try this interesting narrative framework. And we want to do these interesting things with, with profiling and story. And the bosses who normally would be like, that's eh, a bit, too innovative they'd be like oh god damn it i guess it's the wii audience you're trying to like it's a different audience they're not old school gamers yeah so seeing phones blow up i just loved that i love touch screens i love the fact that you have this personal device that's yours that you're going to play something intimate on so i was like okay i'm going to jump into that it's a very long answer to your question no it's good you. um <laughs> and so the start of her story was me going you know i've, I've had this three years of making legacy of kane and that was like a challenging project and we were pushing lots of interesting, innovative things, but it was always a struggle to justify things, right? You would explain uh, to execs, oh, we're, we're trying to tell this story through the subtext here, or we're deliberately creating this adversarial relationship with the protagonist for the opening 10 minutes to create this interesting friction between the player and the character and all these things. And they'd be like, I think they just want to have claws and kill things. Like, please. <laughs> so with her story, I was like, okay, uh, I figured out I had just enough money in the bank uh, that if my wife worked and I did all the childcare and I only ate noodles that I could get myself a year. I was like, so I can go make something in a year. Yeah. And I knew that I wanted to do something in the kind of 
police procedural crime mystery mm. space because I'd pitched publishers a bunch of times. I'd you know, and I'd have a great deck. It would be like every medium you look in, this is evergreen, right? If you have a TV station, you need your cop show, your murder mystery show. If you have movies, you're going to have the mist, you know, novels. Mm. Ev every kind of storytelling industry, this is like a perennial guaranteed pillar of what you're doing yeah so i'd be like but we haven't really cracked it in games there had been like la noir you had like the phoenix rights um but other than that so i would, I would keep pitching it. i'd be like if you have all these really cool ideas and the publisher just would always push back and it would always be yes that's true in every other genre but it doesn't work in games and i kind of realized it was partly because of how character driven mystery narratives are yeah. there's a lot of 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 nuance with people's interactions and behaviors um you know and, and you look at la noir where they they emphasize the car chases and the shootouts alongside that stuff um so i was like okay i'm gonna do something in this space prove that i was right all along <laughs> and very quickly honed in on this idea of the police interview because i was like oh that's actually the most interesting bit to me. Like I was obsessed with the TV show Homicide Life on the Street when I was a kid. Even like, uh, I don't know if you had it over here, we had a show called The Bill, yeah, which was yeah, like the, the cop show. And that was a cheap show. So half mm. of the episodes would be in the room, arguing it out. See, I used to work at Best Buy, right? Mm -hmm. JB Hi-Fi here. And I worked in the DVD section. And let me tell you the crime section, huge. You name any crime show, I've probably seen the DVD spine for it. And uh, The Bill, that was a there's a lot. I mean, yeah. the bill was like, in, in America, they have Law and Order. Yeah. That's like all actors come up through. I've seen every actor on Law and Order SVU. Every single actor I've ever seen in my life has been on Law and Order yeah. SVU. So yeah, in the UK, it's similar with the bill. To me, I was like, well, the really cool bit of those shows is the interrogation, is yeah. the interview, because everyone's lying, tricking each other. It's You just see actors just like going at it. So I was like, okay, what if I make a game that is about that? I don't have to do car chases. I don't have to do shootouts. I'm focusing on the human aspect, which is where the AAA games don't have an edge over me, right? Like if I, you know, you know, L.A. Noir, the bit people point at the most, even though it had that incredible performance tech, like the dialogue system was the most broken part of it. L.A. Noir, made in Australia. Yeah. Team Bond. That's right. <laughs> and so that was like my, that was the goal. And I didn't know what the game was going to look like. Didn't know, am I going to be doing like some little anime thing like Phoenix Wright? Yeah. Will it be abstract, low res, whatever? And I started doing all this intense research. And part of that was discovering what was just the start of like this, the true crime explosion. And it was also kind of very early days for like YouTube. So suddenly video yeah. was becoming ubiquitous. And I was discovering all these real life tapes of real life interrogations from, from different cases. And I was just watching all of them immersing myself in these cases and so at some point after doing all this research i just woke up one day and you know into my head it kind of dropped like why don't i make that the game yeah and then the my brain lit up because i was like well the one thing i was really nervous about was the games i'd be making with bigger teams and bigger budgets like to tell a story the the characters were so key and the performance for me was the was a really transformational element of it as, as a way of telling a story that is deeper and is more condensed and you know has that real human emotion and i knew that i wasn't going to have a budget to do any kind of mocap or photorealistic characters yeah and as soon as i had this idea i was like wait a minute 
I'm going to have the, the best hair physics. I'm going to have <laughs> the perfect eye shading because it's real life. Yeah. And because of the, the police conceit, doesn't have to look great. Like this isn't going to be a huge expensive film shoot. I just need to make it look kind of authentically kind of lo-fi. Yeah. So that that then became the focus of it. And I, you know, I made the game, worked with, so Viva had actually spent a year on Legacy of Kane. Viva was one of the leads in Legacy of Kane. Yeah. So I kind of spent a year working with her and directing her in that project. So at some point I had the game mapped out and then I was like, oh crap, if this actress, if I get the wrong actress for this, the whole game will fall apart. And I don't have money to do intense casting. I don't have the money to go after people. But then I was like, wait a minute. Viva was fantastic on that last game. And I think she liked me. Like, I think she enjoyed it. So I reached out to Viva. And I was like, I was so efficient making her story, like so cheap. I wouldn't go to shows if I had to pay for travel and things. So it was, it, I was breaking every rule. And I, I knew this, like the, at that point, like the kind of indie dev one-on-one, it was like, if you're an indie dev, you have, you know, you do lots of blogs and updates of your game. So you create a community around the development of your game. You go to shows and you go to every show and everyone sees your game regularly yeah. at these shows and you, that's how you build the awareness. But with her story, it was like, until I'd filmed the footage, there wasn't a game to show. And because of the narrative aspect, it was like, I can't really share too much of this thing. So yeah. it was only very late. I took it to this one show and I had a journalist come up afterwards and they were like, this is cool, but what on earth made you decide to resurrect the FMV genre? And I was like, oh, I hadn't thought of that, oh, I guess. Yeah. yeah, that is what I've done. <laughs> so then I literally that weekend, I was like, I need to know about FMV games because people are going to ask me about this. So I did like this deep dive and I had no idea how many games there were. It was there were hundreds of these things. Like we think of like Night Trap and yeah. Sewer Shark and uh, Seventh Guest, mm. but there were hundreds of these things. It was this massive oh, boom. Yeah. And um, more recently, uh, I think Wales Interactive have yeah. been shooting out heaps of really I've met, I've met some of those a couple of times. I've never at any point met, I guess, the people in charge and been like, how did this become your thing? Yeah. Like where you sat in a room and you went, do you know what? FMV. This is going to be our thing. This is our thing now. But- yeah, and I was really interested because yeah, I hadn't played these games back in the day. I had kind of been aware that they were like, you know, that Seventh Guest was really sexy at the time. Like, oh, mm. wow, this is incredible. But looking back at it, I was like, it is actually really interesting because obviously a lot of the gameplay was bad. <laughs> sometimes the production values were bad. You know, sometimes everything was bad. But what you saw was this explosion in genres that otherwise games hadn't touched. So there were legal thrillers, yeah. erotic thrillers, psychological horror, all these genres that were slightly more adult required more of a kind of human element and human nuance. Yeah. Cause yeah, you weren't going to have an erotic thriller with like N64 graphics, right? That wasn't going to work, but now it you could be done. Yep. <laughs> it could be done. It maybe shouldn't, but like it yeah. could be done. <laughs> But I was like, so I was like, that, it's actually cool to me as somebody that, and, and, you know, part of the mission of her story was, oh, I think we can expand into this genre and have a different tone to it. Mm. So looking back and seeing like, oh yeah, this was, and, and it was partly, I guess, because a lot of the people making those games were coming from TV and film. Yeah. So they were like, these are our genres. But also I think it was, you know, there was that opportunity of, of like, these are stories we couldn't tell before, right? You couldn't have- yeah. You know, I mean, that was the focus of L.A. Noir, right? It was like, we have to invent a new technology, which is essentially photographing faces to make this genre work because mm. um, you need that nuance. So, yeah, then I became like a, yeah, I, 
a semi-historian of FMV and an appreciator from afar, even if the games themselves weren't the best. Yeah, there was um, still something so special about them. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. And I guess kind of leading into that, like, you know, coming into the age of now where you have got, you know, you've got your, your her stories and, and your immortalities. And then there's also like these Netflix interactive mm-hmm. series that, that are coming from TV shows. And then on YouTube, there's like stuff that like Markiplier is doing, for example. People love to do those it's, those little it's, things. And my kids really tell me about them. And they're like, this is better than your stuff, Dad. And I'm like, <laughs> come on. Rough. <laughs> well, like, it's it's interesting because, like, do you think it's kind of opening people up, both audiences but also those making them, to an area of game development or, or games that they wouldn't normally go for, like like FMVs? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, her story was born of especially that mobile moment that we had of just like expanding people's concept of what was interesting as a game, right? And what mm. could count as a game. And a lot of that was digital distribution. Yeah. Like when everything I was making as a boxed game back in the day, you weren't even making it for a player, you were pretty much making games for the regional buyer of GameStop because you you could only sell your game if it was on a shelf physically in a game store, right? Yeah. And it was only going to be on that shelf if they bought in a job lot of games. So at some point, someone would be pitching them. And so often you would maybe be lying about the game you were making to make it sound <laughs> sexy. But, you know, that was this obstacle. And as soon as like Steam and the App Store and things happened, it was like, oh, I can make a game like Her Story which is only I'm only making for myself, like not not in a egotistical way, but like oh I'm this is a really specific thing that I know I'm I would really dig if someone gave this game to me, and I know that there are statistically probably a few other people like me out there, yeah, and they can now buy this game because yeah. they can go to Steam and they can buy it from anywhere in the world. So that unlocked. I don't even think it was it was the case that people's mentality changed it was just there wasn't previously a way for them to buy something like this and for it therefore to make sense but suddenly now you could you know have a much wider range of things and and more specific and interesting ideas Mm. so i think yeah fmv was definitely part of that the the one thing that i consciously thought of when i made her story because the the truth of most game development is it's not intentional right and sometimes you're lucky and things work out and you could then look back and tell yourself oh i made some good decisions there but you're probably lying to yourself. But the one decision <laughs> I was conscious of with her story was I was really obsessed with with digital distribution, the importance of the icon or the thumbnail 
right? So if you're browsing what's coming up on Steam, especially back then, you would mm. see a list of games with a little little banner picture. Yeah. And then if you're browsing the App Store, new releases this week, top 10 this week, you would see the, the little square icons. And so I knew that half those icons were cartoon characters. Half of them were like 3D renders, you know, a mixture of, of, of pixel things. Usually on the App Store, it's the, the famously the, the kind of angry man. It's always like side on, mouth open, eyebrows down. Yeah. It's really, yeah. Every time. It's so strange. What is it, do you think, that, that draws people to I mean, that? we like faces, right? And, and we like emotions and dr- yeah. drama. So I guess that's implying some level of, uh, and, and probably we're predetermined to, if someone has an angry face, we probably <laughs> want to pick up on that because that's a survival Interesting. thing. But I knew, like, my, my theory was, if I drop a game in there with a real person's face, that will stand out. So when people are scrolling, it's pixel, 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 3D render. Oh, what is this? Yeah. Right? And I think that did hold out. And I think that is definitely an advantage you have with FMV within games is that ability to have beautiful people expressing things that you can just capture. And there's something about that which people totally. can... And when it came to kind of the creation of immortality, because, you know, obviously you had her story before, then you also had telling lies. How much of your, like, your previous work went into developing immortality? I think like there was definitely, it's like a funny thing as well, because I think pe- from, from a distance people were like, oh, these are Sam's three games that are essentially kind of the same game. It's the, <laughs> you know, the, the, the video searchy game. It's weird because if you make, I don't know, if you're making like uh, first person shooters or something, because it's such a huge genre and because it's so familiar, you can make like a, a slight tweak and people are like, oh my God, this is incredible. It's a whole yeah. new thing, whole new right? Thing. We're going to change how a gun reloads in Gears of War, right? Yeah. Or we're going to limit you to three weapons in Halo. Suddenly it's a game changer. But if you make something that's really left field and out there, it's much, much easier to then ignore some of those nuances. So for me, the moves from her story to telling lies to immortality would reasonably dramatic moves in terms of shifting and in terms of the scope and structure and scale and the feel of them Mm. so you know telling lies is a very different feel to her story has a very different kind of relationship between you and the characters and what's happening but there was you know her story was me trying to make good on this idea of a mystery story and through making it realizing it was it ended up being more of a of a character portrait and, and an exploratory game kind of coming out of her story and giving myself some distance, it was like, oh, looking at this now, what's really interesting to me is this concept of how do we tell a story game where you explore the story itself and the content mm-hmm. of the story. What is it? What does a video look like if you're exploring the video? How can we make that exploration more tactile, more, more kind of freeform? So when I was making Telling Lies, it was like, I think I had like a swear jar for every time I mentioned Breath of the Wild. That interviews, <laughs> but it was like the only other game I was playing at that time that, to my mind, felt the same, even though they're very different, mm-hmm. was Breath of the Wild. There was something about the genuine freedom Nintendo gives you, coupled with a generosity on their part. And the, the content is interesting. Mm. Right? A lot of open world games, it's like, yeah, you can go anywhere, but... Why would you? And and the, the, the space is just yeah. an excuse to fill your time between objective A and objective B or whatever. Whereas when you play Zelda, it's like, yeah, you can go anywhere, but that's going to be fun and your curiosity is going to be rewarded and there'll be interesting things. And I was in that space. So very much then I was consciously getting excited about this idea of how do we make a story explorable? What does that mean? How can players move through all of this nonlinear content in a way that is like intentional but also surprising. How do we make things feel more tactile? So definitely like with Immortality, the jump there was to kind of continue to have this kind of fetishized tactile relationship, which is the opposite of 
watching a movie in a theater, right? If you go and see Avengers, the point there is to make you forget that you're watching a movie and be in the middle of the action and cheering for Captain America or whatever. It's even easier when you see it in 4D where the chair is shaking and things are blowing in your face. It's a horrible experience. An aroma vision, you know, not a vision, whatever. It kind of is, except like it just smells like a bad movie theater, which is awesome. You're really immersed. They have one in Japan where they squirt fragrances to – Fragrances. They they have like, you know, I guess some system that allows them to make things that smell. So you'll, you know, someone's walking through a forest and you'll get like earthy, wet leaves or whatever. Whereas, you know, in Immortality, we go out of a way to say you can pause the footage, you can slow it. We're making you aware of the artifice whilst also, and and there's something kind of neat about, and I don't know, Brechtian or whatever, that is like giving giving you that control over Mm. what's happening so that it's not about that kind of simple illusion of, of being the movie theater, but that allows you to become so much more involved, um, yeah. like making her story then through telling lies. I was obsessed with how much fun it is to be in the editing suite and looking at performance and sat with the editor choosing which take are we going to use, which frame are we going to cut out of? And you become so aware of just the richness of what's going on in people's faces. And so, you know, Immortality was about giving, you know, reminding you of that, even when you click on things and it zooms in and we're blowing it up and exposing the grain, reminding you that like, this isn't reality. It is something photographically captured on film. So there was definitely like this continued interest in how do we make this tactile I've, took, I've like compared things to, to Mario before and it was like, you know, if Mario is a game that's about running and jumping and how do we make that expressive and interesting and challenging, here it's like, how do we make watching bits of film interesting and tactile mm. and expressive? Um, so you are, in, you know, you are in control of the playback and then coming up with the mechanic of the match cut was very much like, how do we give you this very free mechanic where you can click on anything pretty much? And, you know, so you have this incredible freedom of choice and expressivity. You get to define what is interesting aesthetically as well, right? You you can choose the specific frame you want to cut out on or something mm. looks good. And then the really interesting thing on Immortality, which right up till launch, we were like, this could go either way. This could be Marmite, was the idea that, yes, we give you this incredible freedom. You can click on anything, but then the game is going to decide where that cut will take you yeah which allows it to still be surprising it allows that magical cut to occur in a film where you can go from this image to a completely different image and create some interesting synergy yeah but you know there's then you know the there is kind of a a pact between the game and the player of like you come up with something you click on something cool i will take you somewhere cool we're we're both you know it's like a, a party game like uh, telephone or consequences or something where those kinds of games would break down if everyone just randomly said stupid stuff but yeah. if you're like oh no we're all going to try to make this interesting which kind of goes, goes back to aisle right yeah. people trying to say stupid stuff well i mean like there's obviously a lot behind the kind of game design side of her story and immortality how do you think you've grown as a filmmaker through her story all the way to immortality I have grown just through having access to some incredible teams. And so, you know, a lot of immortality came out of, especially working on Telling Lies, we had these incredible teams. And I don't think people realized how good a job they'd done on Telling Lies because one of the objectives was this should look like webcam. But then the actual, you know, the execution in terms of actually making that webcam video look good 
all the mise-en-scene, capturing the, the various threads of color and imagery throughout things, time and place, all the little details that were in there. They did such a good job. And so part of the impetus for immortality was me going, man, if I just let them do the, the, their normal stuff, they, they would do so much cool things, right? If I'm not telling them, sorry, this has to look like a webcam, sorry, the camera has to be operated by the actors, you know, all these restrictions I was placing on them. So yeah, immortality was really, it was, it was a combination of me being extremely geeky and detailed about <laughs> film and film yeah. history and the, the specific story we were telling and then empowering them to just go and do their stuff. So saying to costume, we're asking so much of you, please go and you get to, you know, make these three different movies and there's the movie itself and there's the stuff behind the screens. And then like with the camera team, you know, how do we define these three different eras? Here are all the cool techniques. I mean, Doug, who was our DP, you know, we did such an incredible job of like, well, you know, when we're shooting Ambrosio, this is how the studio film cameras would have worked at the time. Everything would be on, on a dolly track. The cameras are big and heavy. This is how they would have blocked things. There was a lot of sets that we built on that. So everything was, was done in that certain way. And then when we get to Minsky, the second movie, now we're shifting and there's lots more use of handheld. We had these incredible period zoom motors. And so, you know, it was really a great opportunity to just tell people, just give them fun stuff to do. Mm. And they loved it. Like the, the people in the art department were like, we don't normally get to build sets these days will go on a volume and it will be like CGI or whatever. So being told, go and do these things for real. And, um, you know, oh, this is going to be a matte painting. And they're like, oh, that's when you, uh, you know, green screen people. And it's like, no, 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 this is a 1960s matte painting where someone was <laughs> painting on glass. And if you walk this way, you're behind, you break the illusion, right? Yeah. So, uh, and they're like, oh, so we shouldn't do that. And I was like, no, no, we, we, we no, want to do that because we want to <laughs> highlight all these interesting kind of elements of craft. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just realizing this, there's such a beautiful, uh, you know, it's obviously a very relatively mature medium compared to games. Uh, and there's so much craft and, and there's an, ex, you know, a hierarchy of how people work, which is very freeing for me. Cause if you're in games, everything's happening in parallel, different teams. Yeah. So as a game director, you're constantly having to sit in on everyone's meeting because you're the one that's trying to pull it all together, right? Someone's creating combat animation. Someone's doing gray boxes. Someone's building game design. Someone's mm. doing story beats. Someone's making a low poly rat that runs across the screen. Yeah, yeah, lots of low poly rats. And someone's having to create the rat AI. Exactly. And you have to be the one that says, oh, but if there's rats, this person's creating a game mechanic where you can eat things. And <laughs> and, and that's going to mean that the, the person who's building the rat rig needs to know that it needs, to, you know, this, you're having to kind of do all this thinking. Whereas when you're shooting a movie, you're only ever shooting one thing at once. And yeah. the entire cast and crew is focused on this one moment. And everyone has a script as well. So there's kind of a, a shared document where they everyone knows what they're doing. So you can, as director, actually just let the camera team do their thing. Let the lighting people do their thing. Let costume go do their thing. Because yeah. everyone is has this clarity of focus. And then you can just be in the moment looking at what's happening and... and kind of make your tweaks so yeah it's been fun slowly and the thing i realized early on i think the first time i worked with a crew that was like a you know indie movie crew like her story was was just me like her story was very uh kind of robert rodriguez you know doing your own thing we 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 booked out 
I booked out a council meeting room in Cornwall because that's where people were living and told them that I was going to be conducting some interviews and that's why I needed the meeting room. So I didn't tell them I was shooting a thing that it was going to monetize. The good thing about an interrogation room is they're very bland, which makes for easy filming, right? Yeah. So yeah, so I'd done that, right? And, And in fact, when I did her story, when we got the footage back, it looked too good. So I had to do lots of like degrading <laughs> of it to make it, you shit it lock up. it down. I won some audio award as well for her story. <laughs> and I shouldn't say this in case people can actually like AI process it. But because we were recording in this council meeting room and I hadn't told them that we were shooting a movie or a game or anything. And I didn't want to tell them that because I might get in trouble. They were having other meetings down the corridor. Mm. And sometimes they'd make a lot of noise. And I wasn't going to go and be like, can you stop talking? We're shooting a movie here. Because... <laughs> They didn't know we were doing that. So there was lots of, and we were capturing it. I was trying to make it as real as possible. So I think the mic was 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 under the table where it would have been in a, a police station or whatever. So when we got the audio back, it's like, oh crap, like there's all this weird background mumbling and noises and corridor noises and all these things going on. Mm. In the audio, I don't have like that perfect clear thing. I didn't have a boom mic and didn't, you know, wasn't able to shut things down. But then I was like, ah, I, I'll just lean into it. Because it sounds kind of grungy and real. It's a, it's, a, it's a police station. And then I won this audio award where this this prominent audio designer was like, the work you know that's been done in this game is incredible to add these layers in and add this reality and this real authentic sound. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. I'm like, yeah. That's <laughs> and I meant to what, do it. <laughs> yeah, 100% yeah, I did it really well. intentional. <laughs> yeah, the, but the, So having done that and then working with a, a, a real crew, I remember going in on day one, I was like, I am going to be so humble because I know nothing mm. and these people are all experts. But then very quickly realized, and, and obviously I'm making weird things, so this maybe helps, but also realizing like I'm still the only person that has this in their head that mm. knows what this thing is. And that is what a director is there to do, yeah. is to have that vision. So actually, even though everyone has all these incredible skill sets, I can't be too humble because I have, you know, I'm the one that is able to yeah. imagine what this thing is and 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 can kind of lead from there. Yeah, I think the process has been just, you know, building up a team of collaborators, realizing you can give them huge amounts of freedom and but but feed them really interesting things to do and then they'll constantly kind of surprise you. I think I have a pretty good handle now on the kinds of actors I like to work with and you know, it's you know, so but the casting They'll do like a read from the script or from something relevant, but usually it's like, oh, can I sit and chat to this person for an hour and have a rapport? And do they have, you know, if actors ask interesting questions and like to get kind of into the nitty gritty, then that's usually the right act for me. And so, you know, I think that putting as much emphasis on uh, the casting, you know, it's to some extent, uh, it's a a process which kind of self-selects the good actors for me. Yeah. Because, you know, if you rock up in Hollywood and you're like, I'm making this interactive indie video game, instantly half the doors close, right? (laughs) And it's not the actors, it's their management, right? Their management are like, ah, we could land an HBO show or a big movie. This isn't relevant. So so half the doors close. And then when you sit the actors down and you talk to them and you're like, so this is going to be a 500-page script. We're going to be shooting 20 pages a day. We're shooting, you know, 10-minute single takes. And you start explaining how challenging the actual acting is going to be you then again you lose some but the actors that are like oh no that sounds good like oh i like the idea of that challenge and yeah, yeah it's crazy like when we made telling lies and i was pitching people uh like carrie bichet who i was a huge fan of you know oh in this story uh your character is the wife of this other character and you know for actors that have done lots of tv work or film work they know that oh, okay if i'm the b character i'm the wife i might get like one monologue mm. Uh, I'm going to be in a lot of scenes, but I won't get that many lines of dialogue. Um, but, you know, it might be a fun role. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, your character is 
one of several main characters. Like any of yeah. these characters could be the main character. You will genuinely have a movie's worth of dialogue just for yourself. Like that, you know, because these things get so sprawling and so big. So then the actor's like, oh, hang on a minute. Like this is going to be the most interesting acting gig I could get because I yeah. get all of this stuff that I get to do. And then, you know, there's interesting ways we film stuff. So I think, you know, yes, we have incredible casting directors and, you know, I'm going to credit myself with having a wonderful eye yeah, pay for yourself actors. The back a bit. But, you, did you know, there is this element <laughs> where you just, you know, as you see more and more people and you talk to them, you get this real sense of like, oh no, you start getting these actors that are really serious and, yeah. and relish the challenge. And, you know, that's always a joy. That's awesome. I've actually got a question here from fellow game developer Ali McLean, who would like to know why after Ghost Rider you've almost exclusively made games about or fronted by women. At points it has been intentional. So it was very intentional in her story. I started with the you know high level murder mystery. Yeah. Could be a murder mystery. And I started doing all this research into real life homicides. You know, what is the process for investigating them? Why do people murder other people? Classic. And Instantly, the first statistic that jumped out at me was that only one out of 10 murders is committed by a woman. Mm. So then you're like, oh, okay. And that clearly reflects like the power dynamics and, you know, in our world. And then digging into that, it was like, and of those one out of 10, you know, generally, and obviously this is, this is all generalizations, when women murder, it's usually someone they know, an intimate partner. Oftentimes it is in self-defense or it, it is something that emerges out of a, a situation. So I was like, okay, if I'm trying to, tell an interesting murder mystery i'm trying to tell something you know I'll, i will take the statistically rarer thing and as well it's this the weird thing of like obviously i am a middle-aged white dude so you know there are some stories i shouldn't be telling mm. but given uh, and obviously things are getting much much better now but certainly back then given the dearth of female protagonists or female protagonists with with any kind of life to them yeah uh, given the choice of, oh, do I write a 40-year-old white male as my protagonist? Mm. Which uh, has never been done before. Which has never been done before. Yeah, nobody does Or that. do I increase the, the the kind of diversity and interesting things? And for me as a storyteller, oh, there are more interesting stories to be told here because yeah. this is a smaller thing. There are these interesting things to be explored. Um, so that was definitely a conscious choice. And then as once I really got into it on her story, the, the kind of came a point where I realized, and this led to some of the game mechanics, I think, where I realized I had so much empathy and sympathy for the the suspect. Yeah, because so many of these cases, you're like, well, uh, like I was really, really obsessed with the the case in the States of Jody Arias. Uh, it's like a huge, it was a huge case in the States because it was Mormons, sex, death. Um, yeah. She was this beautiful blonde woman uh, who had had this, you know, sexually charged affair relationship and then she had murdered the guy and uh, the way it was covered in the media was horrendous like of all of the stereotyping she was the the ice maiden the the black widow is all the kind of femme fatale tropes and i was watching all of her interviews and and that was kind of like watching some of those interviews where i realized that like oh this police interview moment is sometimes the first time these people have ever got to talk to someone about their life right the yeah. fact that whatever's happened has resulted in murder there's usually a much longer bigger story preceding that so i was really starting to empathize with this character and that led to me being like well actually i'm going to remove the voice of the detective from the gameplay from the experience in itself so it becomes yeah. purely about this woman's testimony and then at some point i realized i was writing about my two grandmothers the last of my grandmothers had just passed relatively recently mm. and she had had this fascinating life that i was only like vaguely aware of because growing up as a kid around her house there would be these photos of this beautiful singer 
on the stage, like uh, kind of 40s glamour. And at points we would be told that, oh, this was this was our nana, this was my grandmother. When she was in her 20s, she had been a singer on the stage. And then I think the war had happened. Yeah. Her uh, the theater was bombed and her dad had said, that's it, you're not doing this anymore. And then she had got married and she'd had kids. And I knew her as this big, cuddly matriarch, northern matriarch. Uh, and, and literally uh, her job was as a school dinner lady before she retired. So she was like the the epitome of the nurturing, caring kind of northern matriarch. And it was only after she had gone that I was like, I know so little about the rest of her life and all these interesting things she did and all these interesting possibilities that the world denied her. Uh, and so I realized as I was making her story that to some extent, this idea of a game in which you were sat listening to a, a woman being interrogated about her life mm. was partly me wanting to have had that level of kind of insight. And I realized it was very much the story about, you know, there's, there's a lot about motherhood and marriage and things in that game, but it was very much, these are the constraints placed, you know, so the, the options that these women had were so limited. These were the constraints placed on their lives. And that then becomes a much more primal thing of, of the extent to which we have like our inner life and our inner monologue and what the world thinks of us, what we think of ourselves, what opportunities are open to us. So that was very much the emphasis. And then, yeah, I mean, so telling lies, the goal there was uh, spoilers to subvert. So her story was a, a police procedural and I had this love of the cop shows, but definitely that, that process of making her story, I was like, no, nah, all cops are bad. <laughs> <laughs> like, right, it was yeah. it was that that transition. Yeah. <laughs> so the the you know telling lies was based on a specific story of some some awful stuff that happened in the UK, and and it was about undercover cops who did really bad things. And so the genesis of telling lies was there are so many undercover cop stories in media, and it's a great format because you have the moral gray area. You have uh, the guy that goes undercover, gets to be a baddie, yeah. but at the end of the day, he's going to turn good. And, and there might be some confliction there. And especially things like, I don't know, uh, thinking like Goodfellas, the, the undercover cop's wife back home is always the, the most thinly drawn character. Yeah. And exists purely as friction. Yeah. She's the one that's like, you're getting in too deep. This is bad. Like, like her only role is to, to provide that kind of friction. So there was definitely going into telling lies was, okay, I want to subvert this. I want to tell an undercover cop story where 100% the undercover cop is bad and the, the game will be very clear on that. Mm. And then I want to give these characters that normally would be the B character, they want to be full characters, right? Yeah. And actually the story that is moving me in these real life cases are these examples of, of there were women who had had relationships with undercover cops unbeknownst to them. One of them had had children mm. with these cops, and then only ten years later they discovered. And, and I was like, yeah. "There's something so devastating in that idea of realizing that someone you're in love with was not who you thought they were." Yeah. But then this wham double whammy of, and it was the state that was funding and organizing this mm. thing. So, and and you know that dovetailed into my perennial interest in what's going on inside people's heads. How much do yeah. we know other people? How much do we project on them? So yeah, I think, and you know, when we started Immortality, similarly, you know, the high level was let's make a game about the history of cinema, storytelling, like it's some big questions. Let's ask some real big questions. And so then you're like, well, where do, who do we hang this story on? Who, who is best positioned to look at the sacrifices and choices if, if you're trying to tell stories if you're trying to make a, a life that is about expressing yourself in art where is the the most dramatic version of that and we're thinking about film 
And it was like, well, the role of the actress, right, mm. is in and the uh, you especially know, the it, tragic actress, right? Yeah, and in the, in the lead up to you know the modern day things have maybe got better, but you know, go back to the early studio system, yeah. and uh, I was like, Rita Hayworth was an early kind of touchstone of like, here is a woman who came in, Margarita Cansano, I think her name was. Mm. She was uh, a Latin actress, came in, and they were like, okay, we're gonna put you through painful plastic surgery. We're gonna literally change your ethnicity. Yeah. We're going to give you a new name. Yeah. We're going to teach you how to dance, speak, blah, blah, blah. We're going to create this character of Rita Hayworth. So, so little agency. But the bit that was really interesting to me was, was now you look back and you're in the 21st century and you're like, well, there's something that has persisted of Rita Hayworth and we've captured that on camera. There is some soul that we've captured on there that has outlived all that we've forgotten the studio bosses and yeah. the dudes that made those choices. Uh, and she's been able to express something. And obviously it's all embroiled in a lot of pain and awfulness. So I was like, okay, that is, again, like the most dramatic and emotionally interesting version of this struggle, right? Of, of how much of yourself do you give away to try and express yourself, to reach out and, and reach an audience? It was like, okay, finding this actress. And then the even more extreme version of this question, because then we start framing it as, the idea of why do we tell stories? Yeah. Is it to create something that lives beyond us, that reaches beyond us? The most awful version of that is the version where you have an actress whose movies never come out, right? Yeah. So the, the premise of like, this is an actress whose movies have all been lost. So that struggle to express yourself has, has kind of hit the most extreme sort of end of act two sadness, right? Absolutely. Of, and, and so that then was stupid naive me in starting immortality we're done telling lies you know, telling lies was about the fbi about politics gender and it was we were making it through the trump era mm. and all this stuff was happening and we were constantly being like do we have to mention trump do we address it like by the time this game comes out trump might be gone gone things have changed like it was so hard to try and make something set in the modern day which had that that political element so when we started with Immortality, I was like, oh, no politics. We're not going to have to worry. You know, it's going to be about film and we're going to explore film and the 20th century. And it's going to be really fun and, and getting to be really geeky and cinephile and exciting. And the second you start <laughs> to peel away the layers and think about the 20th century and film and the role of an actress in a film, instantly you're like, oh, no, okay, this is yeah. really pulling in a lot of that. But yeah, so to answer the yes. question, um, yeah, I think I'm – I'm obsessed with the idea of identity and exploring, you know, darker, more dramatic storylines. So I think that on one hand often does steer towards, well, like who has in some of these historical situations, who has had less power, who has more constraints placed on them. That's where some of the interesting stories come out. There is a desire to be like, well, I don't want to tell another story that is like when we did Shattered Memories, that was that was ahead of the dad wave. Yeah. And that was also, spoilers, a secret, not a dad story. That was also <laughs> a secret female protagonist story. Yeah. So yeah, I'm trying to think, yeah, the next the next game does also have a female protagonist. Amazing. Girls rock, yeah. basically. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Sam. Thanks for having me. My absolute pleasure. And a big thank you to you for listening. If you're liking what you're hearing, why not give us a five-star rating on whatever podcast platform you're using? Better yet, why not give us a nice little review? Here's one from Diablo Kyle titled, Yeah, baby. Have been loving the variety of every episode. This podcast rocks and Ruby rocks. Thank you, Diablo Kyle. Very cool. 
And hey, if you really like what you're hearing and would like to hear more, consider supporting Back Pocket over on Patreon, where you can get access to our lovely Discord full of all sorts of buds. And if you support us at the silver tier and above, you can get access to even more audio content just like this. Here's a little sneak peek at this week's bonus app. Sam Barlow is a terrible writer. I hate what he's done. He's ruined this canonical thing. He's destroyed the law. He's so awful. I wish he would die. And I'm like, oh, Silent Hill fans. And then they'll be like, what he did to Thomas, <laughs> the way he changed, the, the, the way Edward the engine, you know, interacted is awful. You can also find us on Twitch where we've got our main live show every Thursday from 7pm AEST and on TikTok where we are constantly posting very good stuff for you to cast your big beautiful eyes on. And then there's the socials, all the Twitter and threads and whatnot, which you're also welcome to get around. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in. And as me, but normal would say, bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.